0: You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by subscribers on our Patreon. So if you enjoy this show and want to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash laborwave and become a patron. You can also support us in non-monetary ways by subscribing to our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and leave us ratings and reviews, because that helps us reach new listeners. On this episode, we're joined by The One Big Podcast, the official podcast of the Ypsilanti IWW and we're talking about solidarity unionism in contrast to mainstream unions and business unionism. We cover a lot of ground in this episode as well as a lot of strategic questions including those related to dual carding, the ability to inject solidarity unionism into an existing AFL-CIO business type union, and some of the challenges of solidarity unionism. We have lots of upcoming episodes, a series of discussions on Kim Moody's the rank and file strategy, and an episode with historian Peter Cole about the life and times of Ben Fletcher, a black wobbly from Philadelphia and one of the main organizers of the legendary Local Eight, the dock workers' union that had a stronghold over Philadelphia for a solid decade. That and more coming up on Labor Wave.
1: I'm fellow worker Jason I'm from the Ypsilanti IWW. Uh,
2: I'm uh, fellow worker Derek, also from the Ypsilanti IWW.
0: Yeah, and I'm fellow worker Alex. I'm a member of the Philadelphia IWW. So I like one big podcast. I like that one big podcast focuses a lot or focuses specifically on IWW unionism. I was hoping that we could start creating some like definitions around solidarity unionism and explaining it to listeners that maybe don't know as much. Maybe want to learn more and also maybe have their doubts about its effectiveness. So what, what's like a good working definition just to begin? Like if a, if you're going to explain solidarity unionism to somebody, how would you explain it?
1: I'll let the teacher, Derek, take this one.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And it's a question that I deal with pretty regularly when I meet with workers to talk about like what our model of organizing is. Uh, and the the answer to that question, like the most concise answer, I guess I would come up with is workers... Talking to one another um, and being willing to stand up for and with one another around issues in their workplace. I think that's a pretty good basic operating definition. Any, any other thoughts on that one?
1: It's just, it's, it's unionism based on having someone's back. It, it doesn't care about legal stuff, it doesn't care about contracts, although you can work towards those things, but it's rooted in together we've got this.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good baseline to start. I wonder how it would start offering a different perspective on unionism versus some of the more mainstream conventional forms of unionism. Like if I'm talking to a new worker and I say solidarity unionism is about having your coworkers' backs and trying to win things immediately that improve your lives, I think it would be fair for them to say, how is that any different than organizing with like the FLCIO?
2: I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a pretty substantial difference, actually. So uh, I, I think we just talked about this recently in a, in a podcast ourselves. And, and so I was actually meeting with workers recently about uh, about this very topic. And these workers have been pushing real hard for like, when do we reach out to the UAW or when do we reach out to UFCW or, you know, so they gave me like this laundry list of unions and And you know, I don't go to meetings with workers to badmouth business unions because it's not an effective strategy to organizing them.
1: It just happens naturally.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, I do basically. You know, I I did tell them essentially, please. You know, if you're going to go to go to a different union, don't go to UFCW. Don't go to this other union. But um, there are some unions that might do better, et cetera, et cetera. But like, their question was, "Well, what makes you different?" And so my my answer to that is. Really, what, what we do is we build relationships with workers. And in my experience, uh, organizing and seeing how other unions do organize, like they talk a big game about solidarity. They talk a big game about like, we've got to build up worker issues, but I've watched UFC, UFCW come into a workplace and tell workers what their problems are. I've seen UFCW come into a workplace and offer their cookie cutter contract that was offered from an entirely different working context that didn't even address half the problems uh, that those workers were trying to generate. And actually, even more to the point, I have seen some of these unions kind of come in and, and these unions ask questions, like some of these organizers come in and they'll ask questions like, what are your issues? What are your concerns? And I've watched them not even take notes in some cases, right? Where it's really just like letting workers vent and then, and then they come in with their strategy and, and their opinion on what the main issues are and what we can tackle. Uh, and I don't know that that's universal to every trade union's organizing methodology. Uh, but one of the workers that I was talking to recently about this model, as I explained it to them, basically said, so if I'm getting this right, it sounds like you're building like a grassroots sort of workers' campaign from the ground up to get us talking to each other, figure out what our issues are, and teach us how to solve our own problems? And the answer was, yes, that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish here.
1: Yeah. With the IWW, it's we don't want you to be in our union. We want you to become our union. We don't want to just show up, take charge, all right, here's the thing we're going to do. We want to be like, all right, every workplace is different. You guys know it better than we do, so let's turn you into us
0: you organize the worker. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh funny hearing you talk about this. I just reminded of how often I get frustrated with the kind of appropriation of radical union rhetoric from mainstream unions and business unions, particularly around like the ceremony of singing solidarity forever. Like if you listen to the lyrics of that song, like they're they're powerful lyrics. Like I still think if I just read it as like a text, it's like damn, these lyrics are good. This is all like revolutionary spirit. And they sing that song at every convention uh, of a business union at every meeting, you know, a general meeting, and they embrace none of the attitude or spirit of it. And I'm usually the grumpy guy in the corner that won't stand and sing <laughs> and hold everybody's hand <laughs> because I hate the fact that they steal that rhetoric, but don't embrace the spirit.
2: Well, it's like, it's like, it's like people who write emails and, they're, and it's like a it's like it's like just an email to a union member, and at the end of it they sign it in solidarity, and you're like, I don't understand what what are we in solidarity around? You just asked me a question. And, and it's just like a point of rhetoric at this point, right? It's it, it is the it is the play acting of solidarity that 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 sort of insinuates itself everywhere, it's virtue signaling that we are in fact in a union together and we have solidarity. And my question is always. If I get into an argument with my boss and I've got a problem, can I call you? And are you going to come out to this meeting with me? And the answer more often than not is probably, eh, I don't know. Does it fit in my calendar? Do I have the time for it? Let me let me check.
1: So-and-so has sent you a request for 50 bucks in solidarity.
2: <laughs>
0: I guess uh, I think it would be good to just offer kind of a rundown of what you could expect as a worker if you tried to organize you know, a new union with a conventional mainstream union. Versus the solidarity union approach. And I think in the beginning, there might be some similarities in that, you know, a trade union comes in and they really do have to like train you on how to talk to your coworkers, mm-hmm. get that going, learn the issues, and really build something from the ground up. But that is always channeled towards a long term view of this campaign is heading towards winning legal recognition, getting an election that you win a majority vote so that we become the exclusive representatives of these workers, and then eventually we go into negotiations and win you a contract, and the contract becomes the premise of existence for the union. So like, even if you start by building up the organizing muscles of the workforce, it's always intended towards that end goal of winning recognition, winning a contract. And then the contract becomes the thing that you're fighting to enforce at all times. What, what would you all describe as the difference in a solidarity union approach?
2: Yeah, I think that the solidarity union approach and I think you're right at the at the very beginning if you call the IWW if you call the you know the AFT or the UFCW or somebody they'll send someone out to talk to you, right? You'll have an initial conversation. I feel like up front one of the chief differences that happens is a business union is always running the cost benefit analysis, right? Uh and and again I can't speak for every union. I think like the SEIU for example, which is You know, commonly known for some of their militancy and and being a little bit more left of center than a lot of other trade unions. Um, But the but the SEIU will go in and help organize in a lot of places. They spend a lot of money on organizing campaigns, so that might not be the case with them. But for a lot of business unions, they're running the cost benefit analysis. Um, And that part of that analysis is how much money are we going to get in dues out, uh, out of this place? How organized are the workers already? And how much money are we going to have to pour into this campaign in order to win successful unionization? And so that that I think is a part of the calculus for most trade unions as they come in. I've been involved in a couple of conversations actually where they come in and they they tell you every week that we come out, we expect to see the numbers of this grow and grow and grow. And And if they're not, we're going to stop showing up at some point. The IWWs model is similar in that we will send somebody out to talk to you uh, or even a group of people to come out and talk to you in some cases but but we're not going to stop showing up right like if you have an interest in organizing if you have an interest in doing the work we're not here to collect dues money from you we will encourage you to join the IWW uh, but our due structure is very limited it's very tiny it's like what 6 11 22 and 33 dollars depending on where you fall in the salary range. Yep. And and we're going to be there regardless. Like the, the IWW's model of organizing, or at least the way that I enact it, is relational. Like I'm here to build a relationship with you. I'm here to get to know you, your concerns, help you learn to organize. And I'm going to be here for the duration. And, and here's how you reach me. Here's my personal phone number. I work a full-time job. Uh, I might work multiple jobs. Uh, but if I'm not available, one of our other folks will be available. And we build a relationship. I had a worker recently um, tell me after like a year of not hearing from them, um, despite having been there organizing with them a little while ago, they came out and said, hey, we're ready to restart this union campaign. We'd love to go with the IWW. Uh, and, you know, I, I was just, you know, w- w- well, well, why? What's changed? And, you know, one of the things that he highlighted was you're a person that we've talked to. We know you. We you've been here to support us. You always answer our questions. So you're so so if you're the IWW, here's who we want to go with, and so that's relationship building, which is core to solidarity unionism, and core to how we start campaigns as well. I feel like
1: yeah, a lot of human relationships in general are based around just showing up. Like it's so hard to get people. As a guy who used to be a punk rock musician, it is so hard <laughs> to get people to just show up, and that's what the IWW were like. All right, we got fifty people in this branch. We're gonna, we need bodies at this picket line, or we need and like constantly showing up, and that will get you much farther than just, all right, how much dues money's here?
0: I sympathize as a fellow former punker. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that I really do think is important to add to this conversation around the distinction with solidarity unionism is a certain power analysis that's embraced within the solidarity union attitude. And I think that that's a power analysis that focuses on the workplace as the primary arena of struggle. It might look on the surface like, Business unions will focus on the workplace, try to organize the shop, right? They sideline the workplace in a lot of ways, too, through contract negotiations, through electoralism, you know, through endorsing candidates for the Democratic Party and whatnot, and try to fight a lot of legal battles. The solidarity union model understands that the workplace is the center of capitalism, right? This is like where the biggest. The most starkest power differential exists between worker and boss, and that's the place where we need to focus our strategies on organizing and winning concessions from the boss. Would you all agree with that?
1: Totally. Um, I just talked to, uh, on, on my other other podcast, uh, for my radio show, I talked to my friend Preston, who's from Canada, and he's also in the IWW, he's a member at large right now, and we had talked about this, where like, where you can make the most change in someone's life isn't in the ballot box. I'm not a all or nothing kind of guy. Like there's a lot of shades of gray. Like, sure, go vote if you want to. And like, you know, try to change things at the big scale. But if you want to change your life right now, you can organize your workplace because that's where your money comes from and that's your livelihood right there. So if you change who's paying your bills or like you fight against who controls that spigot, you're gonna change your life and your coworkers' lives faster than, you know, every two years voting for blue no matter who.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that, that that does really jive with me. But I also think that, so I'm, I'm, I believe in a diversity of tactics, right? And so I, I think that certainly we focus not only in on the workplace, but the IWW's model is industry-wide as well, right? So sure, we can build power at, at, at like a local restaurant, but workers are going to have the most power. When we recognize that we have power over all of Main Street, because if one workplace shuts down, we can shut them all down simultaneously, right? Like all of us can just walk out. So that's the kind of power I think the IWW is going for—is like industrial power, not just at a individual worksite. Uh, because the bosses band together all the time to build their little coalitions and and their and their networked relationships with one another. Uh, and workers are siloed restaurant by restaurant or grocery store by grocery store. The other thing that I think is important to remember is the Jane McAlvey sort of model of unionism. Uh, I, I don't know how popular she is in all IWW circles, and I don't think that she's the all be all of organizing, but I think she raises really good points. And those points are that an issue for workers is a union's issues, right? And so... So like, that's the reason that the, I think that's a good reason why the IWW has an interest, has a history of being anti-fascist uh, because fascism ushers in like unfettered capitalism and really dangerous power dynamics that makes it more difficult and dangerous for workers to organize for better working conditions.
1: That's that's a preview of an upcoming one big podcast
2: episode, <laughs> uh, and then also like like tenants' rights. Uh, the fact that workers struggle to pay rent, especially like in our area, Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, where there's a housing crisis, as exists. I think in uh, plenty of other areas in the country, housing prices are becoming outrageous. Rent is becoming extremely expensive. And and how and how do we support people whose landlords, who are also direct beneficiaries of of capitalism? Um, are also oppressing us and and just destroying people's lives. And so just
1: a boss by another name,
2: just a boss by a different name. Um, no landlords in our union. Right. So uh, so I think I think it's really important to. Yeah, the work site is like our principal place of struggle. But um, where that where that struggle intersects with our workers lives in enough of a way to make organizing a struggle, I think we also have an obligation to engage in solidarity unionism there as well.
0: Yeah. So even our conception of the worksite is more expansive and dynamic than how it might conventionally be discussed and described. Also, in addition to no landlords, it's no cops in the union,
2: right? That's right.
0: I was hoping that we could talk a little bit more concretely about why these are the tenets of solidarity unionism. Like, What makes it advantageous to de-emphasize the role of contracts in union organizing? Because one of the tenets of solidarity unionism is that you don't need a contract to win improvements on the job. Like you don't have to rely on a contract for your existence as a union. Why do you all think that matters? Like, why is that one of the tenets?
1: I think it's a solidarity unionism is powerful because it's simple, but amorphous. So it can change and fit into any workplace, any condition, as long as you just do the simple thing of joining up together and being there for each other then you know all the tactics and all the contracts that can come later as long as you've got this very simple look if anything happens if anything goes down we're all going down together you can do a lot of things
2: i think that that's true i also think that solidarity unionism allows us to i mean one of the cool things about it right is that is that it doesn't give a shit about about legal law definitions of who we can organize uh one of the cool one of the cool and great things about solidarity unionism and this is one of the things that I find in workplaces too. You know, not all of our managers are bad people. Like like managers are often caught in a really difficult in-between where they're basically doing what they're being told they have to do. And even if they want to help workers, like it's like their job or either they do what the, what, what the owner says or they get fired. And so solidarity unionism actually allows us, right, to engage with our managers in a union that encompasses them because we're not defined by labor law. We're making demands for all the workers in this workplace. It allows like independent contractors to band together and to make demands of their employers as well, or for our, or for our unit to encompass um, those those independent contractors. And so solidarity unionism, the very amorphous nature that Jason uh, like mentioned there, I think is really integral for how we can build those relationships and how we can. How we can draw our own lines as workers about who we are working to better our working who are who are working to better our working conditions for, uh, I, I think that that's really important. The other part, part I think is so much more important than the than the old than the kind of contract model is that the contract model to me leads to bureaucratization, right? That is the sort of inevitable entrenchment of the contract campaign. Is one of worker experts in the contract who become a new layer of bureaucracy between you and the boss.
1: Just hiring your own boss.
2: You're just, you're just well. You know, at least you get input into it, I guess, uh, assuming that your union practices reasonable um, uh, democracy. But the important, the other important thing about solidarity unionism is it requires constant organizing, right? Like, like workers build these structures, and then we have to work together to maintain them. And, and our campaigns to better our workplace kind of come and go as those, as those campaigns, as those sort of campaigns develop, as those issues develop up. And hopefully you've developed those relationships. You've maintained your organizing committee and you're still talking to each other to have each other's backs as these issues develop and take off. And so I think that the solidarity unionism model really encourages us to maintain those relationships and to keep that sort of militant organizing engine going, even if this isn't the contract here.
1: That, and without a contract, it's scarier for bosses because they don't have it on paper. They don't have it, they don't have rules. And like you just did something and won something, you, and then you just sit back and go, we could do it again for something else. And like there's nothing preventing us, just so you know.
0: Right, because a contract often limits the activity of a union through like management rights clauses and um,
2: union rights clauses.
0: Absolutely. I think it's also about strategy, too, right? Like, what I think is um, really important to just be very sober about is the strategy of a contract campaign creates a lot of challenges. (laughs) So, like, uh, we were talking before we recorded about the experience of workers at No Evil Foods. Well, What they witnessed when aiming for the long term strategy of winning legal recognition in the contract before they started getting engaged with the IWW was that that's on the terrain that management's very familiar with, that companies are very familiar with. As soon as you go public and announce yourself that you want a union and you file for election with the NLRB, that aggressive anti union campaign just takes off. And it's nonstop. Those workers were subjected to 14 total hours of captive audience meetings. I've heard experiences of people on campaigns where for months, every single day, there are anti-union consultants in the workplace.
1: It's like literally people's jobs to stop unions.
0: Exactly. And they're well-versed in it. And they have a lot of more powerful levers to pull in crushing unions when they attempt to go that route, that strategic route.
1: Yeah. So if you're coming at them from like the sideways direction of, oh no, we don't want a contract. We just won't work until you change this thing. Then they're going to be like, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? I, I was already for the other thing.
0: Yeah. I, I think that the union busting playbook is actually pretty voided because so much of their playbook is standardized around fighting business unions. Yep. The other part of it that I think is important strategically is after the contract. So like winning a contract is hard enough. Implementing the contents of the contract is extremely difficult. And I can't stress that enough. Like you were saying, Derek, about the bureaucratization of unions. It's not because of any ill intentions. It's because when you get a contract, I've had this experience personally. You have to freaking become an expert at labor law to understand the this obtuse language and all the legal mechanisms that exist to, uh, to give loopholes to the company and servicing grievances. It's like you just there's all these traps. So if you don't know that contract inside and out, you basically become an informal lawyer you do. You have to, you have to have like an attorney's mind to get through this stuff and try to implement it.
2: There are all these traps and and so you have to build like a grievance team that is effective at identifying these problems and then and then going through the whole grievance process. And so it not only requires you to build this bureaucracy to manage the contract, but it also requires a lot of resources because if you have to take something to arbitration eventually, you're going to want more than informal lawyers that are taking that to arbitration. Uh, And so it, it can get very expensive very quickly. I know labor attorneys, for example, whose hourly rate is like $200 and that's and that's that's a little outrageous.
1: Our our branch was just looking into having a lawyer on retainer. We're like, Ooh, we'll have like five hundred dollars, and like that buys an hour.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: all, all you need in the IWW contract wise is to know. Whereas and therefore be it resolved.
2: Yeah, and so I and so I so I agree with all of that. I think all those are really good points, and and I think throwing the boss off their game is such an incredible and like useful exercise at times. So. We were—we actually had a successful—we had a successful campaign. We got to the point to where workers wanted to have a legally recognized union, so we dropped cards. They—we we took them all to negotiate. And even the way the IWW negotiates, right? We didn't bring lawyers into the room. We—they—they they had an attorney who probably thought this is going to be easy peasy, but we did open bargaining, right? And open bargaining is great. Like every member of the local unit was invited out and participated actively in uh, the contract negotiations when the when the bosses were like who are your lead negotiators the answer is all of us <laughs> we're all captains here baby <laughs> and, and they they threatened like unfair labor practices and, and we were we were we were just kind of like i mean okay we're here to negotiate but our negotiating team is like very fluid and so we def- and and so they found the entire exercise very frustrating and like the contract language that we were negotiating was very, like very basic. Um, I know there's you know, a lot of traps in this, but like they basically just wanted to negotiate a better employee's handbook. And that's fine, I guess, if that's if that's what you as workers want to do and you want to have a uh, in on that. And so I think that I think that there's a lot of importance in the way that we as workers can negotiate without establishing all of these sort of bureaucratic processes. And sort of just work work together now to account to accomplish problems as as they're popping up. And you know, if you want to form a union, if you want to form like a legally recognized union, that's going to put some constraints on you, as I think you've highlighted. Mm-hmm. Uh, who can be in your bargaining unit? What is that bargaining unit? How wide? How wide is your bargaining unit going to be? Uh, well, you can't include managers anymore. You can't you can't include any of these um, any of these independent contractors. Uh, and and then all of a sudden, you know, who are you negotiating for? Who's on that team? You're going to be subject to a lot more, like like unfair labor practice charges from the employer. Uh, honestly, being unaffiliated with a contract campaign in a lot of ways uh, frees us to make to make a lot of demands that we probably couldn't have made otherwise.
0: And exercise direct action too. I think that's the one of the key factors of solidarity unionism makes it so powerful is that it recognizes that direct action gets the goods. And you don't have to just wait around forever before you start making demands. If it's about scheduling break times more regularly, and that's the thing that most people want, why should we have to wait three years down the road before we get our first contract before we can have regularly scheduled break times?
2: Well, not, well, not only that, but like even beyond break times, you know. So the Graduate Employees Union at the University of Michigan, um, they they do like this thing that's becoming kind of popular amongst like uh, certain certain union groups where they're doing like social justice bargaining, right? Uh, And they're like, they're arguing to abolish police on campus and and some pretty like like militant leftist ideas actually that I was a little surprised to see come out of an AFT local graduate students or otherwise. But like in the long run, they're a union governed by labor law. And those subjects are non-mandatory subjects of bargaining. You can't legally strike over those issues. You can't legally demand the boss bargain about those issues. And at the end of the day, GEO was pushed because they did strike. They struck anyway. They went on strike, like big like, like big action on the part of a trade union. Um, but in the, in the long run, they, they had internal pressure from like AFT bureaucracy to stop that strike uh, because they were going to lose a lawsuit. They were definitely going to lose a lawsuit. Like and and people were asking like we're asking now like do you really want to abolish the police maybe we can just make them a little bit more friendly maybe they can wear flowers yeah and so there was a lot of pressure on the union bureaucracy to kind of drop it and and they did um, right in the long run like right at the pivotal like right at the pivotal moment when they when they had engaged like dining workers on campus. Residential advisors, all non unionized staff, and they were coming out and they were striking and they were refusing. And then Gio was like, well, we, we got to stop, guys. But if you're not in that model, if you're in a solidarity union, you want to make social justice demands about like, like sexism and racism in the workplace. You want to talk about like the security guards or when the police are called or how you reach out to like authorities. You have more power collaboratively as workers. Where the, where the boss can't file an injunction against your union for, for being loud and angry about the injustices in your workplace. If you want to push those issues, uh, you collectively as folks can do that.
1: The direct action gets the goods, but also that you are your person that you're looking for. You know, like you don't have to wait for someone to come around to save you. It's very much uh, that Daniel Johnston lyric, do yourself a favor, become your own savior. That's the motto.
0: There's a lot of agency in it. Yeah. And uh, what you're talking about with like the GEO strike, I got a chance to talk to one of the workers there, and they did some impressive organizing. I think it comes back to what you were saying about Jane McAlevey before, is that she has some pretty good organ- uh, organizing tips and strategies, advice. Her model is really kind of like, let's see if we can push business unionism to the limits. See how far you can push labor law and stretch it to its limits and see if we can't break this machine within its confines. And I think that there's some merits to that, some insights that are interesting. But it also seems like there's we're like kind of running into, as this is becoming a more generalized and more popular approach to unionism, that it's clearly got a lot of limits, and I don't know that they can actually be busted open through trying to stretch labor law to its limits.
1: But you know, it's also like I was saying before, I'm a I'm a a proponent of attacking from all directions. So like, attack from the inside, attack from the outside, attack from the ballot box, direct action burn down a Starbucks, it's great. Just do it all at once so they can't put out every fire.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I agree that I think it's a good thing to see unions that are already within a business union context trying to push the limits of that paradigm of unionism. And I want to see that spread. I want to see strikes spread, even if they're under AFL-CIO affiliates, fine.
1: A union is better than no union.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I just think it's good to also be clear about the limits. It also reminds me, I was reading in preparation for us talking this really good article by Roger Williams that was printed originally in Regeneration magazine on solidarity unionism and dual carding. One thing that they said that I thought was really interesting was that solidarity unionism is kind of like a perfect archetype. It's like an ideal type, but it doesn't always fit perfectly in every context because sometimes you're in a context where there's already an existing union. So you can figure out how to map onto an existing union, a solidarity union approach. They also talked about how minority unionism is a thing that's embraced and that there might be affinities there. There might be ways to kind of do a solidarity union approach simultaneously with other types of union approaches. What what do you all think about that?
2: I think that the IWW historically has found dual carding to be an unsuccessful method of spreading uh, militant unionism. I'm not strictly opposed to reformism as a methodology, right? But like, you're looking at like the labor notes model of organizing, for example. I don't know if anyone is familiar with labor notes, but um, labor notes is is basically founded out of like reformist movements in the UAW. They've been heavily involved in Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Let's talk about Teamsters for a Democratic Union. A like what almost 20 year old movement? I think I think like 40. I mean, they started in the 70s, right? They've been around for a while and. And and let's talk about where that movement is. No offense to Teamsters because I think Teamsters does some good stuff sometimes, but like they've been trying to oust Jimmy Hoffa Jr for how long?
0: Dec- decades and he's and he's still around.
2: Very long time, still around. Recently um the the U, the UPS the UPS contract that was pushed forward turned down, like like told no by the membership and the Teamsters said eh. But you know what? You didn't hit this specific rule in the contract, which means that we get to override you. So like my question is, okay, reformist, uh, unionism, how's that working out for you? And I'm not going to poo poo people who want to do that. And, and you know, I'm a dual carter. I think that if people want to dual card and they want to push and they want to push reformism in their union and they want to bring people into the IWW or they want to build like a militant wing that pushes Member to member organizing, I'm a hundred percent in favor of that. but so long as the channel the channel of bureaucratization exists, like that's that's the framing that we're starting in, right like we're not starting in a framing where it's like let's rebuild the union, let's let's rebuild our union democracy. We're starting in the same in the same framing that our goal is to just change the current leadership of this union or or to maybe increase stewards who like, it's really kind of like tapping into the current structure that exists in a lot of these places, and then just rebuilding it or putting the right people in the right places. And honestly, there's a reason why unionism in the United States of America over the last 60 to 80 years has seen declining engagement. Washtenaw County, where we are, had 66% union density. 66% union density. It's at less than 12 in 2020. That's yeah. ridiculous. Trade unions have dropped the ball on organizing. They've dropped the ball on engaging membership. People look at the UAW and go, "Why are your members voting for Donald Trump?" And the UAW doesn't know because they don't know their own members, right? They aren't out there developing these relational The kind of one to one conversations. And the problem is, is that if you want to reform that structure, you're always going to be rechanneled into bureaucracy, right? You're always going to be rechanneling worker energy into that bureaucracy. You're still going to have a president and a vice president and trustees and stewards. It's difficult to get workers who are already framed and thinking of the union in those terms into thinking of it as like just tear it down and rebuild it into something entirely different
1: there was a thing i just saw or there was a meeting or something about a sect inside the uaw years and years ago in ham that was like fighting racism in the uaw and yeah, like drum, right? still, yeah it's drum like, thank you I couldn't, yeah. remember the, couldn't remember that and so many anachronisms. <laughs> and like <laughs> fair i thought that was super interesting we we're like no we're just we're gonna be in the same like typically we would be in UAW, but we're just not, we're just going to do our own thing what's much more radical.
2: That was the revolutionary union movement. And the drum was specifically the Dodge revolutionary union movement. And there were several other uh, iterations of that as well.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because when you were talking, Derek, that's what I was thinking of is models like that, where I, I recently had a conversation with Tom Wetzel, who wrote some really good articles in Black Rose about you know, solidarity unionism, syndicalist unionism. It's something that he pointed out about the dual carding strategy that's been a failure so far is because, like what you're saying, Derek, is it's often been construed as a way of reforming existing business unions. What he offered was that actually they shouldn't try to even engage with the existing union at all. What they should do is form a completely independent committee of workers. And use that committee through like a solidarity union approach, syndicalist approach, whatever. And any moments where they have an opportunity to intervene in like union elections, you know, contract ratifications, push back on like any of the capitulations of the business union, fine. But their primary orientation should be towards basically forming a completely new union within the shell of an existing union. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if Derek, you think that that's something that you would agree with too.
2: I think it's really hard. So, like my my question whenever I whenever like hear things like I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. It's an interesting model, and I'm really into it. So, one of the questions I have is, what are the allures of power? Right? Because like because becoming union leadership often brings with it like a certain amount of prestige. It often comes with a paycheck, um, and so access to some more resources. And so what happens if like you intervene in, in union contracts and you push back and, and maybe your union goes to war with you, but, but eventually somebody says, hey, you know what, Derek, why don't, why don't you run for vice president? We'd love to have your voice. Like that re-channeling occurs, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then like, so Drum, for example, the revolutionary union movement, I think existed from like the late 60s to the early 70s. It's like a very short period of history. And it's hard to kind of maintain these movements because the, the, the structure, the bureaucratic structure of the union is likely to outlive the revolutionary energy that workers have unless that energy be, can, can be sustained. And if you're one of those workers and you're a key worker, just like, and this is the same strategy the bosses employ, right? And I think this is such an interesting thing to, to observe, is that it's just like, just like the bosses would do to workers who are trying to form a union. If if one of your union leaders are like, yeah, Derek, you should run for vice president, we'd love to have your voice and your concerns on the on the union board or a trustee or some bullshit like that. And Derek has any inkling of like reform, reform can save us. Yes, I can bring our issues there. And I've got these people who are powerful. Boy, you you become vice president, you get elected, or a trustee or whatever it is, you get elected. And then all of a sudden, you're you're not just you're not just facing the pressure from the outside anymore. You're now a part of that institution, and institutional pressure, institutional inertia, all the like kind of levers of power that you kind of now have access to, where you convince yourself that you can make use of them to better things. Like it becomes a very salient argument to you. And without meaning to be cynical, I think that humans tend to take the shortest Path to ground.
1: It's called gravity, Derek.
2: It's, uh, it's well, what. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, Jason. But I think I think that tends to be our process, and it's not universal. But like the principled, the principled person is is a person that is real. But principles become more difficult to maintain when you're given comfort, right? When you're given access to power, when you're given access to resources. All of a sudden, abolishing wages for union officers becomes difficult to argue when you're making ten thousand dollars a year off the union, because now you're cutting off your own access to resources, and and that's what I think. And I don't know if that's what happened to the revolutionary union movement, right? I can't claim to have enough knowledge of how they kind of ended to know what happened there, but that's my concern with with all reformist movements: is you have to have enough people who are essentially the leaders of that group that are principled enough to say no to peace offerings from union leadership giving them access direct access to power and and money and then and and, and then also continue that movement as the as the unions inertia kind of slows to the point that you can effectively make that change because that's going to take time and energy uh and if you don't have that like it's it's going to peter out
1: yeah, and that, that strategy is the, if we can't beat them, absorb them. If we just bring them in, then
2: it'll suck the fight out of them.
0: It's an effective
1: strategy. It works. <laughs> Why
2: well, the bosses use it when we're organizing. They're like, oh, well, how about you get promoted to manager? Or here's a better salary for some of you, but not all of you. And so I don't mean to poo-poo it, right? So, I, I mean, I think that I think that if people want to invest energy in that, I I will do what I do everywhere that workers want to organize, and that is stand with them. Like, let's talk about how we organize. Let's talk about how we make it happen. But inoculation is always important in every organizing effort, right? And I think being honest with them about what the uphill battle they're facing looks like is really important. And that is an uphill battle.
0: What I get frustrated about with um, union presses in general is this kind of unwillingness to be self-critical, to just cheerlead for any little thing that happens. (laughs) Like, we got a historic union settlement. We got 2% raises, you know, stuff like that. I see it all the time. It just drives me up the wall. I get why they're doing it.
1: Look, we fought really hard and everybody's wearing a pin. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, you want to boost the morale you know, of workers in general. I get that. But I also think it's important just like what you all are offering is just very sober analysis of like the challenges and limits and the pitfalls of these things. And I think this has been a really good conversation, maybe kind of bringing us towards a conclusion. What do you all think the IWW approach and orientation towards the AFL-CIO should be? Do you think it matters to have a strategy towards the AFL-CIO, do you think we should have one? And like, what should it be if we should?
2: I mean, historically, it's not been a positive outlook. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you could say that about a lot of stuff historically. <laughs> that, 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 that's true. I do feel like it's... So actually, your question is really interesting to me because I feel like the IWW has been... Like, we're not, we're not quiet about our distaste for a lot of trade union practices, but I feel like the AFL-CIO has... Has kind of fallen out of our direct line of sight. And maybe that's because the AFL CIO often makes itself irrelevant, posting guillotine memes and then taking them down because it's a little too radical.
0: Ooh, I didn't <laughs> even know they posted the. Gu- oh, <laughs> yo. And
2: so it was, it was a couple years ago. Someone someone posted a guillotine meme and then, like, within an hour and a half, it was down. Uh, so, but anyway, I think so. We have like the Huron Valley Area Labor Federation here in Washtenaw County. And we at the local Ipsy IWW have talked about like joining them as a community group, like not an affiliated union, but just as a community group engaged in the labor movement. But like, have you ever listened to like trade unionists talk about the labor movement?
0: Uh, all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah. So like, like there was a moment in a meeting um, with like Huron Valley Labor Federation folks where somebody uttered the words, uh, there, was, there was like a challenge of like whether or not whether or not we they should represent like both of these seats on some board and and somebody had proposed that maybe we should take one and then invite somebody engaged in like the local labor movement, not in a formal union to take the other seat and the answer was no, we are organized labor we are the voice for all workers and and considering our like twelve percent our twelve percent penetration in the area. I consider that a very arrogant statement to make. I think that our goal is for workers to speak for themselves. Like the IWW is not here to speak on behalf of workers. Our goal is to get workers to actually build the labor movement. Like workers have to get up and and make their voices heard. And it can't just be channeled through the group of like upper middle-aged uh, folks who have survived the union bureaucracy long enough to get appointments to AFL-CIO boards and committees, it can't just be the people who have organized formal, legally recognized unions. And so, like the IWW stance towards the AFL-CIO should pretty clearly be as militant towards them as they are towards towards the bosses that we encounter. Uh, we like we shouldn't be pushing for a fifteen dollar minimum wage. We should be pushing for wages that workers can survive on. Whether well, that's fifteen dollars as a benchmark or higher, we 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 should be pushing for uh, medical benefits. We should be we should be pushing for no sexism in the workplace, no no racism in the workplace. Uh, we should be pushing for workers owning their workplaces, right? And like not, not, not trying to sensitively walk around which trade unions have a problem with our current statement on sexism in the workplace. And, and my last kind of dig at all this is like the biggest problem I have at the AFL-CIO is how much money they spend on elections, like if there's one thing I can tell you in my experience in the quote unquote labor movement these days, it's that there's no sense of community. There's no sense of solidarity. Workers don't know each other. They don't participate in bowling leagues or baseball leagues. They don't come out to the charity fundraisers. They don't donate to the PACs. They they don't come out to union membership meetings or even like executive council meetings. Like you have like a core group of activists who come out, but the union is not the life of the members. They they like they're disengaged from it. And the AFL-CIO's response to this is, that's fine, because it actually helps the union bureaucracy maintain its current position. The people who are there supporting the AFL-CIO can stay in charge. And they become this kind of wing of the Democratic Party, and and nobody can challenge that because they don't have the relationships to actually challenge that power structure because the union has been de-emphasizing those relationships in their unions for 80 fucking years. And the AFL-CIO is like I said, basically a wing of the Democratic Party um, rant almost done. I promise. And, and, and so, and so you have this, you have this like this weird paradox where we're like the Democratic Party hosts Labor Day, the Democratic Party hosts Labor Day, and invites the AFL CIO out to it. What the fuck is that relationship? Why isn't the AFL-CIO hosting Labor Day and inviting workers to it? And if the politicians want to come, okay, you can come and shake some hands, but this is not your platform. It is ours. We are the workers. We own this platform, but we've given them our icons and let them play with our icons like we are synonymous. And the IWW, I think, has an obligation to take those icons back. These are our days. These are our workers. This is our voice. It is not the voice of Richard Trumpka or Jimmy Hoffa Jr. or Randy Weingarten. What do workers need where workers are? And that's not a question I see the AFL-CIO asking publicly while they ask us for money to fund the next Democratic candidate.
1: Also, like the reason to be militant is long-term goal, right? Like if the long-term goal is to end capitalism, we're going to need. A, it can't just be the IWW. It's going to take more than us. And in order to do that. We have to make other left wing groups be more in line with that goal and like push them to be better. When you go after someone, it's not from a place of, oh, we're better than you, fuck you, blah, blah, blah. It's more like, guys, that's what are you doing? You're staying stale. You're staying still and like letting them win. We got to keep moving forward.
0: I like the rants. I don't know if I could could add one. I I guess I would say in terms of the orientation towards the AFL-CIO, and by the AFL-CIO, I'm basically using that as interchangeable with business unions in general. I do think what y'all have been saying is fair to point out and remind people is that 12% is actually an inflation of the numbers. We don't even have 12% union density in this country, but that means that the overwhelming majority of workers are not in unions. So there's a lot of terrain that the solidarity union spirit can emerge out of. So maybe even like trying to focus too much on like what the AFL-CIO is doing is another trap that we can avoid. Like, I think there's a lot of non uh, unorganized workers, non-unionized workers to reach and to meet. And the AFL-CIO, like you said, they make a cost-benefit analysis. A lot of them are going to fall under that. So maybe we don't even need to care too much about putting any energies towards being antagonistic to them. And we could just focus on the good organizing work.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's fair. It's not really worth fighting the AFL CIO. Um, they're going to spend their money how they want, or or necessarily even those trade unions. So I I do my best to not dog or rag on specific unions.
0: You're doing a great job.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: The podcast is fair game. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. That's right. That's right. But you know, when I'm working with organ- when, I, when I'm working with workers, like like I'm not sitting there being like, oh, you know, th- this union's terrible. This union's terrible. The AFL CIO's model is is you know outdated and and hasn't won us big victories. It's because it's not it's not it's not really worth it. it. Like it's not worth to sow division amongst workers. It's not worth it to engage. Like if you meet someone who's really passionate about the UAW, like like I'm not going to organize workers. By telling that worker how much, how many problems I have with the UAW's model, right? It's not effective. Um, What we have to do is always be there to build relationships. We have to do to help workers build structure. Like if the Huron Valley Air Labor Federation in our area wants to do something and the IWW can engage and it allows us to talk to workers and, and engage in a way that isn't giving money to the Democratic Party. I'm not opposed to that. I, I think that where we stand up with workers, um, with other people who also want to stand up with workers, we should do that. And and that's just relational organizing as well. Um, and I'm perfectly okay with building those relationships out.
1: Yeah. And if, if you say like AFL-CIO to the average person, they're going to be like, ALF-CIA, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So just focus on the work.
2: That is a good
0: point. With that, I think this has been a really good conversation. This has been a cross-collaboration with Labor Wave Radio and the One Big Podcast. How can listeners listen to One Big Podcast? Where can they find you all?
1: You can just search One Big Podcast on all your podcasting apps. Uh, We do it through Anchor. I've been doing podcast stuff for a long time. And uh, boy, has it gotten easier. (laughs) You used to have to know how to code. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, uh, Anchor.fm. Just search One Big Podcast. You can find it anywhere.
0: Same goes for Labor Wave Radio. we got a website, laborwaveradio.com. All the episodes are there. Find us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcast.
1: Yeah, and um, we also have a website, uh, iwwipsy.org. I do believe that's it.
0: It was really fun. We should do this again in the future. There's a lot more to talk about.
2: Absolutely.